Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today we have the privilege of having a luminary in the realm of defending capital punishment cases, a former colleague of mine from the University of North Carolina, Mr. Mark Bookman. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Mark works at the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. Could you give us a brief nutshell of what that is? Yeah, the, the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation, what we colloquially call ACRE, is a kind of a, a, of a warehouse for anyone facing possible capital charges or already suffering from a death sentence and, and the possibility of execution from the state. So we're really available as a nonprofit to help anybody that is facing the possibility of execution at any stage, pretty much. I must admit that there were various points in time in my career where I thought the death penalty would be eliminated because we are a civilized nation. I would imagine you had similar uh, thoughts. I naively thought that for many, many years. But I will say recently, and by recently, I mean the last 10 years, I think I'm less naively thinking that it will go away. Maryland is a perfect example. But, you know, the numbers of death sentences are, are down, the numbers of executions are down, and, and it's, a, it's really almost a straight line decreasing. So I am, I'm more optimistic now. I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow, but I am more optimistic than I naively was in the 90s, let's say, or the early 2000s. So what's going to bring about its demise? Well, you know, at this point, given the United States Supreme Court's makeup, and I, I don't want to jinx it, but I do want to be realistic. I think it's going to be a state-by-state state battle. And I think you know what, what really is likely to bring about its demise is, you know, in the late 60s and 70s, the death penalty was not popular. It was sort of a social movement not to be popular. But Thurgood Marshall pointed out, I think rightly, that people were not very informed about the death penalty, that it was much more of a gut instinct. Now, I think people are very informed. They're aware of mistakes that we make, and we should talk about the first DNA exoneration, which came from Maryland. So they're aware of mistakes. They're aware of bad lawyering. They're aware of prosecutorial misconduct. They're aware of systemic racism. And I think all those things together and the cost of the death penalty, which is extreme, I think that combination is starting to lead people to think that this is really a failed government program. And so, you know, I'm more optimistic that state by state, it's going down. And, and at some point, it will decrease to such an extent that there won't really be a death penalty anymore. So that's how I see it. So you don't perceive that the United States Supreme Court will ultimately determine that it's violative of the Constitution for some reason? I, I think the key word is ultimately. I think they're going to have to see more states get rid of it and, and the numbers continue to decline. I, I, they're not this current Supreme Court is not ready to do that. I don't think anybody would predict that they would be. Ultimately, I think they will find that, but it's going to be a little while. So are there states that have eliminated the death penalty? You know, I'm from Pennsylvania. We're like the sore thumb in the entire Northeast. So Maryland got rid of it, you know, some years ago. And your, your listeners probably know that. Virginia, on the other hand, just got rid of it a couple of months ago. Right. And, and Virginia is a state that historically executed more than anyone else, even more, more than, than Texas? Texas, more than more Georgia. Than Texas. Well, it's because Virginia was a state longer than Texas okay. and a colony longer. 
So it's a little bit of a technicality, but my real point is Virginia was a very active executioner, very active. And the idea that they just got rid of it is, you know, it's pretty remarkable for people like me. So Pennsylvania is the only one in the entire kind of, in the entire region, basically, that still has it. New Jersey's gotten rid of it. Delaware's gotten rid of it. You know, Maryland's gotten rid of it. Virginia's gotten rid of it. The whole Northeast has basically gotten rid of it. New Hampshire still has it, but not really. They're not using it. So, you know, really we're the only ones. It seems ironic because of Pennsylvania's Quaker roots. I mean, it seems antithetical to, you know. Quaker background. You're absolutely right. I think Pennsylvania has a much more of a reputation for Quakerism, for if that's a word, than the reality of it. Pennsylvania is a regressive state in many areas, no more so than the death penalty. We're almost iconic in the sense of a large death row, but an unbelievable number of reversals of death sentences. You know, we're, we're the textbook example of how not to do it correctly, basically. So we got a lot to cover in a relatively brief period of time. Yeah, I'd like to focus a little bit on your new book, A Descending Spiral, Exposing the Death Penalty in 12 Essays. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. I'm really happy that it's coming out now because I, I feel like we're at a tipping point. And the more people know, you know, the more likely it is to tip in the right way, in my opinion. So hypothetically, if somebody wants to get the book, where do they get it? You know, you can really, I mean, it came out May 11th. You can get it anywhere. Okay. I think it's, Amazon. In, it's in a lot of bookstores. It's on Amazon. It's almost any place you can get it at this point. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the book. 12 essays, are they all different topics, different people? What's, what's it about? So really, I've been writing these essays for some years now, and I would basically pick a topic to, to write on. So, you know, I might pick a topic on ineffective lawyers or prosecutorial misconduct of hiding evidence, uh, innocence. You know, so almost any topic I try to cut racist judges, racist jurors. So I really focused hard on picking cases that are not well known because I didn't want the idea that I was cherry picking these cases. I think it's much more important for readers to understand that these are common cases, that the average death penalty case has this kind of, you know, errors or mistakes uh, or injustices in them. I didn't want people thinking that I'm picking kind of the most egregious cases because then it doesn't have the same moral significance. I, I want the readers to understand that this is typical, not unusual. And uh, that was important to me. So, I, you know, each one of the essays kind of re represents, a, you know, a different topic where things can go off the rails and severe mental illness. There's a, a million of them and uh, a million possibilities for the death penalty to go wrong. And so that's that was the, really the point of the book. So I gather that lawyer ineffective assistance of counsel is a prevalent problem. Mental illness is a prevalent problem. I suspect poverty is. I suspect there is a much higher incidence of the death penalty being inflicted upon different racial groups and that sort of thing. Is that a pretty accurate basket of things? Yeah. And you know what? Maybe we should stick to the last one first, because racism just permeates this collection. You just you see it you kind of over and over again in different realities. 
And it's important, I think, for, for your listeners to understand. And one of the essays deals with this. There's a severely mentally ill man who gets a death sentence. And so there's actually, there's actually 11 stories, 12 essays, because one of the stories is told from two different perspectives, one from a severe mental illness perspective and one from a racial discrimination perspective. And so it's a, an essay about a black man who kills his white wife, his estranged white wife. And on the jury are three jurors who answer their questionnaires by saying they're against mixed marriage. You may think that those jurors would not sit on the jury, but the defense attorney doesn't even question those jurors. They sit on the case, they impose death. And just so your listeners don't think that this is ancient history, only about a month and a half ago, the Fifth Circuit affirmed that decision. So they looked at three jurors who are opposed to mixed marriage, imposing a death sentence in a mixed marriage murder case, and the Fifth Circuit said that was okay. And this was only a month and a half ago. So, so what's, the the deal dissent, with their, what's the deal with the lawyer? Well, let me just say the dissent yeah. had to cite Loving versus Virginia. You'd think that you wouldn't have to cite that case all these years later. But sure. So the collection is relevant up to the minute, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. What's up with those lawyers? I mean, so, you know, I just said earlier that each of these cases deals with a topic, but there's always an overlap. So here you've got severe mental illness, you've got racial discrimination, you've also got kind of inept defense lawyering. You can't separate these things out. They overlap in almost every case. So just so we don't get too inside baseball for our audience, a lot of them know about Loving from the movie that came out, but that yeah. was a case involving the propriety of interracial marriage and its permission. Yes, that's right. And when you have people like who I are said, opposed to that, it's a tricky business. Yeah, I mean, you know, you see commercials, people are commenting on the fact that commercials have mixed couples pretty routinely these days. And, you know, Loving versus Virginia is an old case, but the idea that, it, that a court has to cite that case today uh, and a dissent has to cite that case today. Pretty remarkable, I think. So is that case going to wind its way to the Supreme Court or what's the probability on that? It's, it's headed to the Supreme Court and we're just going to have to wait and see. I would imagine there's a reasonable chance the Supreme Court will, will look at that case. Yeah. So what does your organization do in the context of these? You can't litigate all the death penalty appeals and that sort of thing. What, what sort of services do you provide to lawyers and, that, and, and defendants? Yeah, I mean, let me first point out, we're a small nonprofit and we exist without government support. So we exist on donations. And so, you know, anyone that's interested, please go to AtlanticCenter.org to take a look at what we do. It really kind of lays it out. You know, we try to consult on as many cases as we can. There's 51 active cases just in Pennsylvania. So we try to consult on as many of them as we can. We do trainings two or three times a year, different levels of trainings for, for death penalty lawyers. So for instance, a lawyer that sees that jurors are against mixed marriage may know to question those jurors. So we do trainings, we do consultations. I do my share of, of direct representation in pretrial cases and in post-conviction cases. We do a, a lot of communications work, which is what I think I'm doing right now. I would like sure. to think I'm doing right now and what I'm doing with these essays and with the book. So, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of everything and it really depends on 
the timing of it and, and what seems most important at the time. Uh, so what, what's your background that brought you to this? Our audience doesn't know really, so. So, so you know, at, at the University of North Carolina where we met, I was fortunate enough to, to do work in the clinic there that got me started. I was a public defender for 28 years in the Philadelphia Defender Association. And for 17 of those years, I was in the first homicide unit there. So Philadelphia was a very, very active death penalty city. We no longer are, for at least for the time being, because we've elected a progressive prosecutor, Larry Krasner, who I think a lot of people might be hearing about. And Larry's my old office mate, as coincidence would have it, in the Defender office. So I was 17 years doing capital work, really. And then in 2010, a number of foundations sort of got together and, and thought the death penalty is a, is a nationwide problem. So they encouraged me and another person to start the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. And we've been going for 11 years. Our slogan, which is somewhat contrary to my request for donations, is trying to put ourselves out of business since 2010. You know, that's Amen. the goal. Amen. The goal is to end this thing, and, and that would be great. So that's where will, we are. Will it happen in your lifetime? That's the million-dollar question, Bob. You know, I'm pretty healthy, so I'm cautiously yeah. optimistic. We'll see how it goes. Keep working out. <laughs> yeah. So we, it's funny because we we got together purely coincidentally a couple of weeks ago. You were doing a favor for somebody I was doing a favor for. And we did talk about the importance of the Krasner election. And I don't think that our audience has any sense of how important the chief prosecutor where they are is. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, boy, that's a great question. So Larry Krasner was the first of the progressive prosecutors across the country. You know, a true progressive. And when I say that, I mean, he is very attuned to decarceration rather than incarceration. And he's very to the unfairness of the criminal justice system and, and making decisions that might rectify it. From my own very kind of unique sliver of the criminal justice system, he ran on a platform of not seeking the death penalty. And he, you know, he, he has a committee that considers it, but his inclination is not to seek it. And he had a, a quote that I really liked. He said, seeking the death penalty was like lighting money on fire. And by that, he meant that, you know, counterintuitively, and we can talk about this, the death penalty is very expensive, much more expensive than, than life sentences. And so he looked at Pennsylvania and he said, we've only executed three people since 1962. They were all volunteers. They all wanted to be executed. They all had mental health problems and wanted to be. So there hadn't been a single involuntary execution in close to 60 years. And he said, there's no bang for the buck here. Even if you believed in the death penalty, it's hard to support it the way the, the process is running. We're paying lawyers a minimal amount of money. They're doing an awful job. All the cases are being reversed. So we're spending all this money for nothing. It's unfair to the defendants. It's unfair to the defendants' families. It's also unfair to the victims' families because they're getting brought back into court over and over and over again. So Krasner won his election and then he just had a very contested primary a couple of weeks ago. Right. And against someone who was an old school DA who Krasner had fired. And like I said, hotly contested, but the public came out very supportive of Krasner. 
And he looks like he's going to be in there for another four-year term, which is, you know, very, very important in Philadelphia, but also nationwide, that we have a sense of these progressive issues and how important they are to criminal justice and to social justice. Were you surprised by that result in the election? I have to say that, you know, somewhat pessimistically, you know, the FOP, the police union, was very strongly supportive of Krasner's opponent. And we were hearing a lot from the opponent, not quite so much from Larry, frankly. So I pessimistically, I wasn't sure how it was a very off off year election. And uh, we weren't sure how it was going to go. I was pleasantly surprised he won basically two to one. And uh, that just reinforced our feelings that this is an issue that's here to stay. It's not just a passing fad. So I'm very, very pleased and relieved, quite relieved. Is it going on in other parts of the country? You know, progressive prosecutors have been elected in a lot of the country now. I mean, it's, it's really starting to be a trend. And I, I say that because I, I don't want it to sound like a fad. It's not. I think that, you know, there was an amazing study in Philadelphia from 1994 to 2005. The Rand Corporation did a study because the public defenders were handling 20% of the homicides and court-appointed lawyers were handling 80%. And I'm going to tie this together if you sure. just give me a minute. So what the study found is that if you were represented by the public defender's office, you were 61% more likely not to be convicted of first degree murder, 19% more likely to be acquitted, and overall your sentence was 24% lower. The key finding by this RAND study was that if you were represented by the Defender Association, you saved the taxpayers more than $200 million in incarceration costs. So progressive prosecutors are taking that message across the country. People are interested in not throwing away money like that. That sure. $200 million over the course of a, that can be used for bridges and roads and reforming the police department, schools, you know, as opposed to incarceration. So I think that the progressive prosecutors movement is catching on. And, and I think even for conservative people, nobody wants to be throwing away money. So, you know, I do think that's why I think it's here to stay. So from what you were saying earlier, you talked about decarceration as opposed to incarceration. In other words, letting people out of jail as opposed to putting them in. Yeah. Uh, it's quite an interesting thing. I have to think there's an enormous savings in that as well. Well, sure. And so... I've heard this from, from people, you know, about getting rid of the prisons or whatever. I don't quite understand that concept too well. I, I'm not a naive person. I was a public defender for years and years and years, as I said. There's no question that punishment plays a role in our system, and that's a reasonable role. But I also think that we're punishing far longer than necessary. The numbers by criminologists are clear that people grow out of their criminality, for lack of a better word. So I'm somebody that thinks our punishments are way too lengthy and way too venal, and that we can achieve the same goals with significantly shorter punishments. So that's what decarceration is really about. I mean, I'm not somebody that thinks we should incarcerate for marijuana. That, that's absurd to me. But for serious crime, I think we incarcerate too long. And I think we need to start looking at letting people out of prison in a, in a shorter framework. And I think that's what decarceration really means to me. 
I mean, it seems to me it's sort of Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of gut level reaction. Somebody commits a violent crime and everybody wants them put away forever. And I'm not sure how you combat that, but it, it certainly needs to be undertaken. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that feeling of retribution, that feeling of rage that everybody feels when you hear a, a horrible crime. I mean, any human being feels like, you know, you're really angry at that person. But, you know, the phrase blind rage is relevant there, right? It can blind us to a more kind of thoughtful reality. So, you know, this is why we don't let victims dictate punishment, right? I mean, our criminal justice system has to be better than that. I mean, we can definitely get rid of theft if we cut off the hands of thieves, but that's not the society we want. So, you know, while we have this rage or this feeling of retribution, at some point we've got to let ourselves cool off, back away, and be more responsible. And, and so I think that that's, you know, we have to let that feeling of rage pass. And the more we do that, the better our system will be, I think. So a couple of things, I do always think it's somewhat ironic that you're in a situation where the only people being executed in Pennsylvania are those who are going voluntarily owing to mental illness. And at the same time, assisted suicide, I suspect, is not legal in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And we're in a world in which you know, people are vehemently opposed to abortion presently. And yet this is state sanctioned killing of viable human beings. And I just, I don't understand how it comes together. And I do feel like they can cross pollinate each other to assist in eliminating the death penalty going forward? It's a great question. And let me just say, one of my essays in the book, one of my actual favorite essays, is an essay about a, a young man, a, a client of mine, although I didn't represent him in the capital case, who was being paid for sex from the age of 13 on. He killed his abusers. And the prosecutor was... You know, if it was a young girl being victimized by older men, no one would have any trouble knowing who the victim was and who the abuser was. But when it, it comes to crime, it's a whole different story. So the prosecutor was making the, the young man who's being paid for sex to be the predator, the abuser. You know, so when you talk about cross-pollinating, they just couldn't pull themselves back to see who the real victim was and who the abuser was. You know, classism, racism, criminality, it tends to stop us from cross-pollinating the way we should. And so the more we talk about that and the more we can get people to, to see the trees and not just the forest, that will help. So I think you asked a great question. And how we achieve that, you know, communication. It, you know, it's like the abuse excuse, right? People love the phrase and conservatives always seize on it. You know, oh, it's just an excuse, right? You know, so he was abused at the age of four. What's that have to do with him now? He's 40 years old. But ask those same people if they would let their four-year-olds be abused on the theory that it wouldn't affect them later. Not one of them would say that, right? The abuse excuse is one of the dumbest phrases ever. Thank you, Alan Dershowitz. But when you really think about it, you realize how stupid the phrase is. So it's the same thing with a lot of these examples that you're using. We just got to pull people back and help them think about it. So the final thing, because we've only got a few minutes left, I wanted to talk to you briefly about the prosecutors. And I mean, it's the Larry Krasner phenomenon. You have good ones and you have bad ones. And it is a political exercise. 
And in an awful lot of places, people want to seem like they're hard on crime and they're really going to take people down. And that sometimes leads to competitive problems with prosecutorial misconduct. With They withhold crucial information yeah. that were, they're obliged to provide to the defense. What, yeah. what are your thoughts about that topic? I think that being a good prosecutor is the hardest thing in the world. And I admire good prosecutors a lot. You know, you use the key word, competitor. So, you know, when you grow up, you know that the defense is doing everything within legal bounds to win. And so it, it's human nature for the prosecutor to try and win also. But their job under Berger versus United States, which is a 1935 case, is their job is not to win, it's to do justice. So prosecutors have to be above the battle, basically. And that's not such an easy thing for, for them to be. So like I said, I greatly admire prosecutors who can you know, maintain calm and recognize their obligations. So these progressive prosecutors who are preaching justice and not winning percentages, you know, they're what Berger was all about in 1935. And that's, like I said, a hard thing to be, but really admirable. I'll take a good prosecutor over 10 Mark Bookmans any day. You know, I think the world would be a better place if we had both. <laughs> Brady versus the state of Maryland, baby. Yeah, there you go. You know, and you know what? One thing, one thing we never talked about, I, 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 I wanted to just mention it, sure. is that the first DNA exoneration came from Maryland, Kirk Bloodsworth, who now runs Witness to Innocence, a, a terrific organization. And uh, Kirk's a good friend. And so Marlon kind of led the way there in a sort of a positive and a negative way, I guess. We've bounced some people from the Innocence Project through this show previously, and it's amazing yeah. the stuff that's going on in this country. And I do think those cases, I mean, it's an odd thing because I've represented people in civil rights cases who were improperly incarcerated. And Maryland had terrible laws at the time that essentially you know, provided nothing for people who lost years of their lives. And it does seem like that's changing in the overall legal climate. Yeah, you know, a couple of people in North Carolina just got $85 million for a wrongful conviction. On the other hand, I've got some stories where they basically extort guilty pleas from people before they get out of prison, you know, even though they know they're innocent, just, uh, just to avoid- To that. cover themselves in civil litigation? Yeah, really. I think you got a lot of work ahead of you, Mark. Yeah, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's not so sure how close it is. We'll see. Might be an oncoming train. Well, hopefully not. So Mark's book, A Descending Spiral, Exposing the Death Penalty in 12 Essays is available. We'll further enlighten people with regarding the issues concerning the death penalty. Thanks for appearing on Everyday Law, Mark. It was my pleasure, Bob. Great to see you. Farewell, everybody. Have a good afternoon. We'll see you next time. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.